Good evening, church. I was just thinking as, as we were singing those songs, I could, I could do that all night. <laughs> what a thing to remember the, the cross of our, our Lord and, and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is, a, it is a, a pleasure to come and to proclaim God's word to you this evening, to remember what the Lord has done, that he has rescued us from the, the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the, the kingdom of his Son in whom he loves. Amen? Amen? Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We will be looking at verses 45 through the first half of verse 56. And our, our theme really as we, or what we decided early on is that we would go through Matthew together. And last week, uh, Warren preached through Palm, or preached Palm Sunday, and it was a glorious uh, time together that we could come and, and hear about Palm Sunday, the, the Lord entering into Jerusalem really one week before the resurrection, but, but simply five days, five days before Good Friday. And, and when you look back at, at the book of Matthew and, and you see from chapter 21 where, where it's Palm Sunday to chapter 27 and the crucifixion, a number of things have gone on. There's been uh, Jesus cursing the fig tree. There ha, ha, Jesus has been teaching in, in parables. Uh, he has pronounced the, the woes against the Pharisees. He has preached on the Mount of, of Olives or the, uh, during the Olivet Discourse. Uh, talking about his second coming. He's, he's been anointed at Bethany. He's spent his last supper with his disciples. And he is in anguish, prayed in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, preparing himself, preparing himself for what's going to take place. He's been betrayed, he's been arrested. He's been tried. We know that he's been tried unjustly. And we can't help but, but see this, this thing that Jesus is going through as an injustice. And in one sense, it truly is an injustice. You know, it, you know as, as Kenny, or I think as Dennis said, that this, this only righteous one to ever live in human flesh suffered on a cross, on a cross for, for our sins. And he did at the hands of, of wicked men. So there's this injustice, but there's this purpose in it. So if you would read with me Matthew chapter 27, just for the, the sake of context, I'm going to begin it at verse 32. So he's been tried and now he's, he's taking out his cross. And in verse 32 it says, And they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they had came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a, the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He could not save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he, de- if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now this is our text. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you, and Lord, I just come humbly before you as, as your servant. Lord, I pray that as I proclaim these truths that we're, we're looking at, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see the glory of your son's cross. Lord, it is our rescue. It is our hope. Father, we we pray that we would be people who are willing to tell people of your rescue for us. And Lord, we thank you that we can gather on this Good Friday evening, Lord, to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you know that, that I like movies. One of the things I, I really do love about movies is cinematography. I, I like those parts of movies that, that you, it really brings you in and you see something and maybe you see something that you never saw before. And the way a director will, will, will show you something, that you just see it from the outside and you, you wonder at it. And, and there's a movie that many of you probably have seen. It's the, it's the movie Titanic. And there's many in the, things in that movie that I... I, I wish that I had never seen. But there's some parts, and there's one particular scene that I think is, is, is so important as we talk about our rescue. And it's a scene where the captain and the head engineer who really built the ship and the ship owner, they're all coming to the bridge of the ship, and, and they're there, and the engineer lays out the blueprints and he shows these blueprints with, with bulkheads that, that are running through the ship. And he tells the captain of the ship, what has happened is we have, we have cracked five of the bulkheads. And he says, yeah, but this ship can't sink. He says, if it was only four, that would be true. But because it's, because it's five, what's happening is, is each of those is, is filling with water. And what it's doing is it's, it's causing the ship to sink 
on this side. And eventually it will sink so far that water will just simply run over the top of each of those bulkheads. And they're sitting there in, a, in, a, in amazement. And, and, and he says to them, in just a couple of hours, this ship will sink. And in this movie, he, the director moves them. And, and, and you go to another part of the ship, and it's, it's where really the first class people are. And, and they're, they're actually putting on life jackets, but they're, they're not fearful. They're not afraid. They're, they're, there's music playing. They're excited to be on this ship still. And you're wondering, they, and you're seeing it from a completely different perspective than, than they're seeing it. This amazing scene, and, and these people are happy, and they, they don't have a, a care in the world. And they had said this about uh, the ship Titanic before it had left port, that not even God could sink this ship. What arrogance. But sadly, brothers and sisters, there are people today with that same attitude. God... God is not going to judge us. God is not going to, to do anything to harm us. God loves us. But God's love is displayed where? On a cross. On a cross. And so as you watch this scene and you, you can see that your assessment of what's happening is, is so different than, than what, and they are blind to the fact that in just a couple of hours, over 1,500 people will die only 700 will be saved. And although they're wearing these, these fine clothes and jewels, they are poor and they are, they are wretched. And we know that they couldn't save themselves because there weren't enough lifeboats. And, and eventually Rose, the, the, the main character in this movie, comes and, and she sees the engineer and, and, and she says to, to Mr. Andrews, because she could see it on his face, what was happening, and she says to him, I saw the iceberg, and I see it in your eyes. Please tell me the truth. And he replies, the ship will sink. She says to him, you're certain? He says, yes. In an hour or so, all of this will be at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Please tell anyone you must. I don't, want you to be I, I don't want to be responsible for the panic. And get to a lifeboat quickly. Don't wait. And here's the issue. When we're gonna, if we're going to understand the Passion Week, if we're going to understand Christ going to the cross, we have to understand that we are in the same place as these people are. We have to understand that we are in a, a desperate situation. And I know for some that's maybe a, a new reality for you. Or, and, but in order for us to take the cross of Christ seriously, we must understand our desperate situation. And so when we look at Matthew 27 in these verses, I want to see that that really what, what Matthew is doing is, is he is explaining our rescue. He's, he's explaining our lifeboat. 
Because Christianity is about being rescued. And, and when we think of Christianity, what, do we, what is the symbol that we think of most often? The cross. It's the cross. I mean, when, when we survey Christ's life, what do we see? We see that in the incarnation that he was, he was born in a manger, but we don't celebrate a manger, do we? When he lives a, a perfect life, we don't, we don't celebrate, although we, we rejoice in his perfect life, we don't celebrate some symbol of his perfect life. When we, when we look at the resurrection, we don't have a stone as a symbol of our, our Christian faith. Yes, I know some people are, are actually doing resurrection eggs. <laughs> And there's all these little symbols that symbolize all these different things. But we don't have those. The, the one thing that we do have is what? It's the cross. Because the cross is our, 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 our lifeboat. When we look at no, no other religion celebrates the death of its founder. In fact, most people, when they think of, of Christ, they think it was an injustice, but they don't know the purpose for this injustice. No other founder of any other religion is celebrated for his death. And, and most of the time when we think of death, it's a, a sad and horrifying thing. And even the Romans. I mean, we, we've seen, the, many of us have seen the passion of Christ. We know, we've heard sermons on, on the brutality of, of the crucifixion. But even the Romans condemned crucifixion. Cicero, a Roman orator, says this. He says, It is the most cruel and shameful of all punishment, punishments. Let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen. Indeed, let, let it never come near his thoughts or his eyes or his ears or the word passed through his lips. They, they were horrified by crucifixion, and they wouldn't normally crucify a Roman citizen. It was always for the slaves and those of other countries that they had conquered and criminals. You know, I read a, a Fox News article during my studies, and just this week, and you, you can look it up, but, but the title of this article was this, God Turned... Moral evil, God turned the moral evil of Christ's crucifixion into a gift to humanity. Let me read that again. God turned the moral evil of Christ's crucifixion into a gift to humanity. But as I read that, I said, that's not enough. Because it sounds as if this happened outside of, of God's will. But he changed it for the good. And so I, I was thinking, no, the, the, real, the real title should be this. God used the moral evil of Christ's crucifixion as a gift to humanity. I mean, listen to what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. He says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So you see, it was God's sovereign purpose to bring Christ to the cross. It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you have this, this purpose of God. It's more than God just making it into something good. It was good. 
It was good that Christ died. It wasn't some afterthought, but it was the very center of, of Christ's message and the apostles' message and the church's message and our message. Listen to what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But the question is this, why? Why? Why is this symbol of this horrible pain and horrible cruelty a badge of honor, our, our, our symbol that we hold on to? the symbol that is really precious to believers, the symbol that we just sang about. It's because the cross is our rescue. The cross is our rescue. It's, it's our lifeboat. Augustine said this. He says, There is no one in this world who is not a stranger. Speaking of Christians, he says, There is no one in the world who is not a stranger, even if they don't desire to return to their, their homeland. We suffer floods and storms on this journey, but at least we ought to be in the boat. At least we ought to be in the boat. If there are dangers in the boat, which we all experience, don't we? If there are dangers in the boat, out of the boat, there is certain doom. However strong the shoulders of, of someone swimming in the sea, eventually, He's overcome by the power of the sea and sinks and drowns. We have to be in the boat. Then, that is, be born by wood so we can cross the sea. The wood that bears our weakness is the Lord's cross. The cross with which we are marked. The cross by which we are protected from drowning in this world. The cross is our boat. It's our, it's our rescue. It's what we, we cling to. And as we look at our passage, I want us to see three points that really bring this truth uh, forward. The first one is this. We, we see that God was angry. We see that God was angry. Secondly, we see that, that Jesus was abandoned. And thirdly, we see that we can be accepted. And the first one, God was angry. And we see how this explains the cross. Look at verse 45. It says this, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And as we see that, this, what this is telling us is that it's, it's noonday till three o'clock in the afternoon, there is darkness over the whole land. And, and some people believe that, that this was a, an eclipse. And what you have with the eclipse is you have the sun, and then you have the moon, and then you have the earth. And so that when the sun shines on the moon, there's, there's a shadow that is, that is on the earth blocking out the sun. But we remember this, that this, this is the Passover. And the Passover was held at a full moon. So you have the sun, you have the earth, and then you have the moon. So it can't be an eclipse. This is something that God has supernaturally doing, and he, and he does so for what, three, for three hours. Darkness over the whole land, and, and we see this darkness, and it points to this fact that, that darkness is about God's wrath and God's anger. Looking back at, <clears throat> looking back at the Old Testament, God judges Egypt 
By doing what? By bringing darkness over the land when Pharaoh refused to let the people go. Remember that this was the plague that was just prior to the sacrifice of the Passover. So you have this darkness, and, and this darkness was for not three hours, but for three days. And this darkness covers the land. And in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, it says this, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. I love how it says that, a darkness to be felt. It's, it's so real and oppressive because it's God's wrath being poured out on them. So as Jesus is, is hanging on the cross, the, the darkness falls over the whole land, and we know that God is angry. God is acting in punishment. And often we think of anger in a completely different way than, than, than God's anger is. Sometimes we, we know people that fly off the handle, they get angry really quickly. That is not God. God is purposeful. God's anger is something that, that, that is against evil. It's controlled. It's, it's against evil and his hostility towards it because God is, is just and, and holy and, and he's pure and he must punish evil. And I was thinking that for me as becoming a grandfather a few years ago and seeing my, my grandsons grow up and watching their parents bring discipline, sometimes I'm that grandfather who's like, don't do it. <laughs> They're too sweet. I wasn't like that with my kids. <laughs> God is not like that. God must. God must punish. God is just, and He's holy, and He must punish sin. And I know that each one of us, we, we have sinned horribly against God. And we know that there are people who have sinned against us, haven't they? And you know, God will judge that too. You know, I was thinking as I was preparing, what, what is the worst thing that anybody has, has ever done for me? And, and people have done different things. And the thing that came to mind was something that happened to me when I was 12 years old. 12 years old, I had a, a red strand cruiser that my mom had given me. And I was riding it and you know where Hobby Lobby is over on Hawthorne Boulevard? It was a, at the time when I was 12 years old. Those buildings were there, but it was, it was vacant at the time. And, and I was riding my bicycle. And I got stopped by these two boys. They were probably 16, 17 years old. And they said, give me your bike. And as I started to ride away, I felt my hair being pulled and being yanked off my bike. And they began to ride away on my bike, and I couldn't, I couldn't do anything about it. These two, they were bigger than me. I mean, think I was small. I'm small now. Think of what I was then. And I said this. I said, I'll remember you. I'll remember you. Guess what? I don't remember them. In fact, I, I, 
I marveled just like a day or two later. I couldn't remember what they looked like. But God remembers. God remembers everything. God knows everything. God knows every sin that we've committed. And God will pay that injustice. He will bring justice against those young men that stole my bike. But it's true that over the last 30-something years I've been a Christian, I would rather have this. I would rather have myself go to heaven and have God introduce me to that person as a brother and rejoice that his injustice was paid as well as mine. No. God judges sin, and he will judge sin. And if you're not in Christ, he will judge your sin. And, he, and you will do so. You will pay for your sin in a place called hell. And yet it doesn't have to, to be that way. Why? Because not only is God righteous in his anger, Jesus was also abandoned as he was on that cross. And we see that in the very next verse, in verse 46. It says in verse 46, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22, and if you read Psalm 22, it's a, it's a messianic psalm which describes many of the elements of, of crucifixions, what someone who was crucified uh, actually experienced. And, and for years I believed, I believe this, and I know that there are Christians who believe this, I believed that, that Jesus, all he was doing when he, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was he was pointing back at Psalm 22, saying, look there. I mean, there were no verses, I mean, there were no chapter headings, there were no verses and so how would, how would Jesus get them to look back? He would, he would quote the first verse. But as I've studied over the years and as I, I've studied this, this passage, I, I believe today that there is a connection with the darkness. The wrath of God is being poured out on Christ. There's something more than him just pointing out. He is feeling this, this sense of abandonment. John MacArthur, I, I like what he said because it's hard for us to understand how two persons of the Trinity could be separated and one could abandon the other. But he, he says this, it, he says, it doesn't mean that God wasn't there. God is everywhere at all times. What it does indicate is the experience of our Lord that God had forsaken him in the sense of dis, disclosing his full presence. When our Lord says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, he is not saying that all of a sudden there is a vacuum in the universe and God is absent. What he is doing is crying out the very words of Psalm 22.1. He is experiencing the abandonment of God. And he goes on, it means that his presence is no longer there in the sense of experience, in the sense of blessing, in the sense of intimate awareness. And of course, as our Lord was feeling and enduring the outpouring of the divine wrath that was coming on him from God himself in the darkness of those hours, it was clear he was experiencing 
the presence of God, and listen to this, he was experiencing the presence of God in a way completely opposite that he had ever known, it, known before. It was as if God had abandoned him. I love that. It's that these two people, these two persons of the, of the Trinity who have been in perfect unity and fellowship over all eternity, it's changed all of a sudden because the wrath of God and the sin of the world are on Jesus Christ. And now, Christ is punishing His, his one and only Son, and, and, and Jesus is, is forsaken. And He's doing this because, because He's the lifeboat. And, and Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says this, and and when you, when you look at, at your lives, I'll, I'll get to this verse in a second. When you look at your lives, you have to remember that, that everything that we do in life, God sees. And so we can think of our lives being, being shown to God. And Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. No, our lives are, are brought before him. And the most hideous and, and unholy thing that you have ever done, the thing that you are, are most ashamed of, God sees. God sees. It's all in front of him, and God knows it all. And the worst thing about it is, is it's not just those sins that we, we commit for the sake of our own pleasure, but, but the sins that we commit in rejection of Him. I mean, we reject Him. And I, I remember for years, I would, I would have the gospel proclaimed to me. And I would just say, that's great for you, but not for me. God has provided this lifeboat, and I'm, nope. Going back to what Augustine said. What was I thinking? I could tread water. I could tread water for all this time, but I could sink. I could drown. I could sink to the bottom of the ocean. But God has provided a lifeboat, and we reject Christ, but we see in this, in this passage that, that Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Christ is, is su suffering this, that alienation that we once had with God, right? We were once aliens and separated from God. And Christ is now experiencing a, a measure of that separation. Isaiah 53 says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in this Good Friday, the darkness of your sin is, is laid upon upon Jesus, and, and, and all of God's righteous anger at your sin is now being focused on Him. That's including the worst thing that you've ever done. In Colossians, Paul says, says this in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. He says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Aren't you grateful for that? That every one of your sins, if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, every one of your sins, past, 
present, and future have been nailed to that cross, you have been forgiven. You have been set free. But if you don't have that, you're choosing. You're choosing to reject that. But you don't have to. You don't have to. Remember that, that we are like those passengers on the, the Titanic, and, and there's a lifeboat, and we can be rescued. That brings us to, to my last point. We can, we can be accepted. And we see this back in, in verse 50. It says this. It says, And Jesus cried out with a, a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He, he died at that point. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, what, what's happening here is that, that Matthew takes, takes the camera off of the cross. And, and he, he takes it and, he, and he, he shines it in the temple. And if you, if you know anything about the temple, the temple in Jerusalem was separated by the, the holy place and, and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And there's this large temple, which was basically, do not enter. Nobody, nobody could go into the holy place, except the, the high priest, and that was one time a year. And when he went in, he, he took blood from the Passover lamb, he took blood in there, and he sprinkled it on the Ark of the Covenant, or the mercy seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But when he went in there, he had, he had a rope tied around his waist so that in God's presence, if he was struck dead, they could pull him out. Nobody could go in there. It was that, it was that dividing line. And in verse 51, it says that this curtain is ripped in two because Jesus had died on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was forsaken for all of our sins and suddenly that, that curtain is torn in two and the presence of God was, was opened up to us. And our alienation with God was over because sin had been paid for. It was another movie that I like, and I've watched it a few times with, with my sons and probably my daughters. It was a movie called Saving Private Ryan. I'm sure many of you have seen that movie as well. It's a good movie. It's, it's about a soldier named James Ryan who has lost all three of his brothers. And we have this this group of soldiers who were tasked with what? Going and finding James Ryan because all his, his brothers had died so that James could go home to his, his mother who was, the, who, who was all alone. And we know that they, they go and they, and they finally find James Ryan and, and they're fighting this battle and eventually, really, I think all of, all of the soldiers die. And as Tom Hanks, who plays uh, the Captain, I think it's Captain Miller, is lying there, and he's dying. Private Ryan comes up to him, and, and Tom Hanks says this. He says, earn this. Earn this. And then the film moves forward some 50 years where James Ryan, now an old man, visits the grave of, of Captain Miller in Normandy. 
And he's at the gravesite, and he says this. He says, every day, I think of what you said to me on that bridge. Earn this. I have tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that it was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what you have done for me. Then he turns to his wife, and he says this. Tell me, have I been a good man? Have I lived a good life? But brothers and sisters, Jesus on the cross, when he dies, he does not tell us, earn this. He does not tell us, earn this. He tells us, it is finished. It is finished. He cries out with his word to tell us, die. This one word that we transfer, translate into three words, it is finished. It is paid in full. You don't have to earn it. I have paid for your forgiveness. It, forgiveness, it is a free gift. And that word to telestai is, is, is what's in the perfect tense, which describes the past completed act with present effect. It's a past completed act that has a present effect on us right now. It is finished. It is paid for. Many of you know that this last summer, I decided to put a roof on my house to do it not really by myself because I had a lot of help. <laughs> Thank you if you're here and you gave me a lot of help. <laughs> but it was the hard, probably the hardest physical thing that I've ever done. And as I was working on that house, as, as I was trying to get the roof on, as I was getting to the very end, this rainy season started to happen. We've had the most rain, but I had to put a tarp over it for just a a short period of time, and, and by God's sovereign grace, I had a, a neighbor who used to come to a Bible study years ago drive by, and he's, he left a, a little sticky note on my door saying, hey, I noticed you came to a stall. Give me a call. <laughs> and so I called him, and, and he came over, and, and he, he was a roofer, and, and this one part of my roof that was a flat roof, I didn't really know what to do, and, and, and he did it. And I can remember just coming to, to an end. It is finished. <laughs> and it is finished, and it still has a, a lasting effect. I have not had one leak this whole winter. I've owned that house for over 20 years. I, it has leaked every year since I have owned it. It is finished. It is finished. Now that, that word is a word of, of completion. As, as Jesus dies, he says, it is finished. And even though God is, is angry at sin, you are forgiven if you are in Christ Jesus. Because even though God demands justice, his justice fell on Jesus. So my, my question is, when it comes to Good Friday, are you in Jesus? Are you in the lifeboat? And if you, you aren't, I would invite you. I would beg you. Don't. Stay on the Titanic. Get in the lifeboat. 
get in the lifeboat or you're going to have to pay for your sins yourself if, you're, if you don't. And that's the truth. That's the truth. Please let Jesus pay for your sins. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for sending your one and only Son to be the sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world, Lord. You have people in this world that are yours, and Lord, I pray that we would be people to proclaim this truth, that Jesus is the Savior, and the cross is, is our glory. Father, let us remind people of this truth. Let them know your goodness and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.